welcome to the Think Factory podcast. We got one question for you. What keeps you up at night? Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Think Factory podcast powered by OGC Solutions. Uh, You know, the nice thing about this podcast is I really get to sit down with interesting people that also happen to be friends, Um, and that's the case with this episode. I'm, I'm sitting across from Matthew Negron, uh, the president of Dauphin Furniture. Um, so Matt and I have, have met lots of times, talked about you know, workplace trends, uh, what's going on in the furniture business, the real estate business, the market generally. And today's a good time to sit and, and chat with Matthew just about some of his uh, observations. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Chris. I really appreciate it. So, so Matthew, tell us a little bit about uh, you, know, you and, and Dauphin and, and just one a uh, little side note is I've always been impressed with how you're out there marketing really creatively, um, you know, taking a business that, you know, could always use a little more jazzing up, you know, the furniture business and really making it interesting for people. So share what you can about the business. Absolutely. So Matthew Negron, president of Dauphin, we're a contract furniture manufacturer based out of New Jersey and we're German owned European design, but we localize a lot of our product. So the goal is we choose local fabrics, materials, we source our materials as close to New Jersey as possible, and we really build products to specification. And, you know, I say the contract furniture market's not always the most sexy, but the goal is as furniture trends have been changing and adapting, we've been able to really pivot our business. And, you know, even in your own office, you had a couple of task chairs here, but what we're really seeing in the industry is we've modified ourselves from a task chair manufacturer to an answer a specialist. So our goal is providing soft seating, lounge furniture, multi-purpose seating, and things that can be easily moved around and allows you to restack a space. So our goal is we want you to utilize the furniture still for 10, 15, 20 years, but hopefully every two, three years, you're modifying your office based on the current trends that are happening and also how your team wants to work. Every office is a little bit different. Right. Well, you know, we'll get into that in a minute about how much the workplace has really changed, but what you're saying is that the, the way you've designed the furniture, you can actually, on the fly, really adjust the furniture to fit whatever the needs are at that particular time. Absolutely. So a lot of our furniture that we've been designing and engineering, you can take it apart, you can re- put it together, change the configuration out in the field. So this allows it to, one, you don't need any special tools to do it. So you can almost do it yourself if with the right screwdriver, essentially. Mm-hmm. And the goal is now you're modifying it based on growth. Maybe you're downsizing, you're scaling back, or maybe your office has gone hybrid and you realize like, hey, half of my office isn't using it so I can do this in a more constructive way that makes sense now. So that's been really our goal is just designing product that can be modified out in the field on a continuous basis. Yeah. You know, it's uh, not that this is a plug for Dauphin necessarily, <laughs> but we are one of the satisfied customers. I think you have uh, some of the most comfortable chairs out there that uh, we, we've seen. I won't, I won't mention the other manufacturers that we tried, but yours are fantastic. And, and uh, it makes the day a little bit more palatable here at the office for sure. I'll take a positive testimonial any Absolutely. day of the week. I appreciate it. But some of your designs, you know, I, I've been to your showroom and some of your designs are just really sleek and, and you, you, you know, you talk about being European yeah. owned. It's got that, I don't know, that designer flair to it beyond the typical office chair. Yeah, I think a lot of the products, what our benefit is, we're not sourcing or licensing our product from other manufacturers across Europe. We have our own design teams. We have an industrial design team, engineering team in Germany that are designing our products. We also have our own industrial designer and engineers in New Jersey as well. And what's great is we're able to modify our products ourselves. We're able to make those changes. We're able to kind of listen to the industry trends, but also listen to our clients. So as they give us feedback in the field, we're 
all, we're right away we're taking that feedback and applying it to our current designs, new designs. And a great example I can kind of give you of how this loop works is we came up with this product called Atelier in New Jersey years ago. And it was doing really well for us and our German parent company wasn't really selling soft seating. So they adopted it as their first one. They adopted it, sales were really good behind it. And then they took their design team and they redesigned it and re-engineered it. And then they sent it back to us. And now we have a new product in the US. So you, and they put that European flair, that design that's really desired in the US. You know, I say, thankfully the US has gotten away from the, the really big, thick, lazy boy <laughs> chairs in the offices. And now they're more accepting of sleek design, you know, really clean lines and good form and function in a product. Well, that's the combination that's hard to find sometimes is the, you know, it looks great. It's sleek looking and, and some brands you sit on them and they, you know, they feel like uh, you're sitting on a rock, but yours actually kind of accomplished both of that. Both yeah, of sitting, those things. sitting on a rock where you end up sinking all the way down yeah, to the bottom too. I say you get a little bit of both. Yeah, exactly. But you know what, when you talk about this flexibility, I'm, I'm really interested in you know, I read all these articles about how the workplace has changed, especially during COVID and post-COVID. You know, that flexibility is really the name of the game, whether you're talking about where you work or how you work at a particular spot. And you even mentioned to me that there's this idea of, you know, not just home and office, but a third office too. Tell us about that. So I think you already nailed part of it. I always tell people it's, you want your employees to work how they want, where they want, when they want. So the goal is to provide that flexibility day in, day out. And those days, you know, there's the office dichotomy of having a focus workspace and a collaborative workspace. Now you're starting to enter this area of, well, what do I do in between focus and collaboration? What if I want to escape my desk? What if I need to retreat? And, you know, you've seen wellness rooms pop up more. You've seen meditation spaces. But it's also the ability to just pop in a room and get away from your fixed office where you don't want to look at the same things. Because you want new energy. You want to get inspired. And now you have this concept of the third workplace that's coming into the market. So the first workplace is essentially your home office. Sorry. Your first workplace is essentially your physical office where you're getting work done. So that's where your company's locating you. Right. Your second workplace is working from home. And I think we've all experienced that throughout 2020 to even now. A lot of people are working from home or they have a hybrid schedule. So now the third workplace has come up and that's essentially all the in-between areas. So it could be as simple as a coffee shop. It could be a co-working space that you're using. But the third workplace also exists in the physical office. And the idea behind it is... Well, if I want to collaborate or I want to bump into someone or have more casual collision, how do I promote that without having a designated desk or having a designated conference room? And that's really the goal behind it is you're creating these areas where your employees are engaging each other on a social level. And the idea is I bump into you, Chris, in the office. I want to ask you, you know, how are you doing? How's your kids? How's your dog or anything else? And then we'll also be like, hey, what are you working on? What are you doing? And you really want to be able to promote that in the workplace. And that's also the reason people are going back to the office. You know, I think the days of office mandates and saying you have to be here is kind of starting to peel back a little bit because employees have a little bit more power. They're willing to make less money for the right environment. So the goal is now, if you're making me come to the office, give me reasons to be there. Make me feel good. Give me good social practices and behaviors. Make sure that I feel that I'm being acknowledged when I'm there. And also, I mean, is it providing me upward mobility? And I think all of that just comes from having conversations with senior management, your peers, your colleagues, and having really, really good conversations. Yeah, and it's not just about free breakfast or free lunch or snacks. It's a, to your point, it's really about creating these little meeting places or pods where people can, you know, benefit from the interaction rather than just expecting sort of free things when they come to work, right? Yeah, I think the free beer only goes so far. And <laughs> I think a lot of people are, you know, what's my purpose? I think that's been more important for people. And you're seeing 
people walk away from companies if their social responsibility of the company doesn't align with their core values and they're joining companies that aligns with their core values. I think that's the biggest change is you're seeing this new generation Z come in the workforce. You know, we have millennials and now millennials are anywhere from early 30s now into their 40s. And now you have Gen Z that's in their 20s. And I think they're a very different breed of, of human. And I say sometimes we're a little hard on them. And we, we might, you know, I think millennials were called lazy, but now 50% of the workforce is millennials. Right. So I say lazy only goes so far. But for Gen Z, I just think they have a very different code of conduct. I also think they didn't grow up with the technology or the lack of technology millennials had. You know, they don't know what a VHS tape is or dial-up internet. They always knew fast internet speed. They always knew flexibility, mobility. They knew how to be nomadic from 10 years old and they had an iPad in their hands and they could yeah. just run around. So now the goal is, is how is your office providing that both culturally and also in, in initiatives that they're doing? Well, you know, that what you're, what you're saying reflects what I'm seeing too or hearing about too is that this hustle culture, right, that yeah. people refer to, uh, that was definitely a thing when I was coming up, and I won't even mention when I came up. But um, uh, we didn't have cell phones yet, just for the record. No, but in all seriousness, though, the, that that hustle culture of working more hours and working harder to get ahead is something that's you don't see, or or the, that Gen Z doesn't really reflect that sentiment anymore. I think their hustle is kind of different, and you know the term side hustle pops up a lot. But I almost I don't look at side hustle as like a second or third job. I always look at a side hustle as an outlet for a passion, an outlet to maybe make more income, but it's really something that you enjoy doing versus something that's forced upon you. You know, I think, you know, at least for me, having parents that are, you know, a good 30 years older than me, I always say is that, you know, they had to work essentially a second job, bring in more income, work overtime because it was requirement to sustain a certain standard of life, pay mortgage, get groceries. But I think now Gen Z is, yes, they could be struggling financially, but they're okay to struggle a little bit more if their passions have better outlets out in the market. And I think that's more of what we're seeing is, and, that, and that's also is, is the company providing you the space to do your, to do your passions? And Google has a rule of thumb where they say 20% of your work week could be dedicated to your passion because they believe that it's going to help Google pioneer new products. So if you're providing the space, you're going to pioneer and innovate for us, but you're also expressing your passion and what you enjoy. How do they, and maybe this is a little off topic, but how does a company like Google capture the, the product of that passion necessarily? Because not all passions are going to be consistent with the business, right? Definitely. It's not always going to be consistent, but I think you see through, you know, think tanks that they do. And I think a great example is there's a product. I just listened to a podcast the other day that was talking about the light phone. And they did a think tank where they brought in designers to basically come up with the next best app. And, you know, the whole idea with applications or apps on your phone is they want to source your data. They want you as they want you scrolling as long as you can. They want you clicking around. And as you're scrolling and clicking, they're collecting data. And that's how Google monetizes it. So they said, hey, let's have a bunch of designers come and come up with the next best app. And we'll give you guys all some funding for the ones that, that are quality. So there's two people that came up who founded the Light Phone. And they actually came up with a light phone that's not an app, but it's a product. And the whole point of the light phone is to disconnect from your mobile phone and your smartphone. So the goal is it's, it only has phone, texting, notepads, calculator, and Google Maps. But there's no, no other applications on it. You can't get distracted by social media. So if you're traveling for the weekend or if you're away from work, you can grab your light phone. All your calls can get forward to it. It only has nine contacts. Hmm. So it's only your, you know, your emergency contacts, essentially, or people you need to talk to. And not your boss, probably. And not your boss. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely not your boss. No work email as well. No Slack or Teams. Yeah. 
But what was great about it, it came up with the products. I think what Google did was they were then able to invest in the product and help out and promote it. But it wasn't that. And I think they do that the same in their offices is they allow you to work on these different things, but they're willing to pivot with you. And they'll change what they're doing and how they're modifying it. And they'll, they're accepting of it. Because they've realized like, hey, we might be seeking X, Y, or Z, but we might get A or B. And that's okay. And I think that's, you have to have that mentality. I think, you know, for yourself as a business owner, you have to be willing to pivot in the marketplace and change what you're doing, not daily, but at least weekly or monthly, you have to look at your practices and what you're doing and what's happening in the marketplace. Yeah, you have to pivot, I guess, you know, companies that don't pivot don't survive, right? But I think the average rate is, what is it, most companies survive for the max 50 years before they go out of business. It's Mm -hmm. very rare for companies to break a 50 year mark. And some of it's generational, you know, you get a founder that founded it, they don't know how to exit, they bring the family in. But also a lot of companies stay stagnant. And you saw that with, you know, simple example, old example, but, you know, Kodak, they had the first rights to do digital cameras and they really believed they in it. Yeah, they blew it completely. And they were like, oh, no, we're going to stick with film. Film's where the money is. And and they, they put that in a safe somewhere so no one would see it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hoping that film would last forever, right? And look where we are now. Not even with cameras anymore. Now it's all smartphone based. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's an example of not pivoting and we're going to see more of that. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, But when you talk about, I I find it so interesting because there's a psychological aspect to it too. Um, You know, that that's another reason why the you know the workplace setting that you create with the furniture that you that you manufacture is so important because it it it, how you set up the office changes the dynamic completely, Mm -hmm. right? Um, I'm always interested to find out, you know, and I'm not even sure we have answers to it. But how do you how do you set it up just so that you can catch somehow capture that energy somehow? Uh, besides making people more productive in what they're supposed to be doing. Because what you talked yeah. about at Google is more like this, you know, if you if you go back in time, you know, IBM or, or Kodak was one that had the, or Bell Labs, they all had these these sort of think tank atmospheres where nothing was off the table, just go go think and create things. But um, I, sometimes I think in our current environment, we sort of lose some of that somehow. So there's a professor from MIT, I believe his name is Alex Pentland, and he did this study for the, the office, and he wanted to find out how much are people collaborating? Are they really working together? Are they spending time together? And he had, he called it, it's a three method. So it's energy, engagement, and exploration. So what he looked at it was energy is having a conversation. So you and I right now are having a conversation, so that would be a form of energy. Now he looked at engagement was how much are those conversations happening throughout the office? Is it isolated to one corner? So you have one real talkative corner that's exchanging ideas, they're conversating throughout the day but if it's only in that corner you don't have good engagement so your your office culture is going to suffer from it and they looked at exploration as if you are physically exploring outside the office to kind of mentally satiate yourself you're more likely to leave that company you're also less likely to engage with your employees but if you're an employee or your colleagues and peers you guys are sharing ideas and you feel mentally satiated you're you're happier you feel better you feel as if you're contributing so we looked at it as terms of energy energy engagement exploration and i think that's a good way to start looking at it you're seeing furniture companies come up with more sensors and analytics that they're building in so you can measure how much a space is used and you know i still think it's early development but you know it could be as something as simple as you know we're sitting down in soft seating right now could there be a sensor in there so you can see how many hours or minutes it's used? How often is it used? How often are people getting up and down? Are they sitting there too long? Because right. it's also important to move around. And so I think we're at a point right now where data analytics hasn't been fully fleshed out in furniture, 
but you're seeing companies try to capture that data now and maybe become a third party supplier, maybe someone that's specific in analytics. I know Google has their own sensors that they've innovated that they can do as well. So I think a lot of it is, can we capture it and aggregate the data? And again, you're not selling it, you're kind of, or you could, I suppose, mm-hmm. but you're kind of monetizing it for your own company culture and your benefit to modify the space that's there. Yeah, but like anything else, you have to take that data and do something with it, right? To make sense mm-hmm. of it, right? Does it mean that you need brand new furniture or do you just need to move around what you have? So like to your point, I think we're probably a little bit far away from, you know, other than basic utilization, it's probably hard to figure out what it all means, but I think it's so interesting. Yeah, but at Neocon, what was interesting was the term that I heard pop up a lot was micro changes. And it was coming from facility managers. It wasn't from the furniture companies. It was from facility managers and landlords. And they were basically referencing micro changes as every week making changes to your office. And if you're realizing that a certain area is not being used, don't let it sit there for a few more weeks. That week at the end of, you know, Friday end of day, change it, move it, modify the furniture and see if that activates it somewhere else. Because maybe it's the location is wrong or maybe the product is wrong. And that's the only way to vet it out is if you now move that product to a more populated area that has engagement, does it get utilized or not? Right. So that term was really, really popular at Neocon. It was one of the first times I've heard it used consistently across the board. Well, that's why your flexible setups are so important because you can't make micro changes if you can't make changes on no, them. No, right? absolutely. So if you're, think- you're thinking about things that are just bolted to the floor or just immovable. And I think it's also... You know, there's a concept called design for assembly, design for manufacturing, design for disassembly as well. So I think that behind that is you also have to design your products now to be modified. Maybe you need a different base. Maybe you need to pop it off in the field. So designing it for disassembly modification is, is really important. And I know for Dauphin, that's been a big focus of ours is you can take a lot of our products and take off the legs and modify it. So maybe it was on a wire sled base that's fixed. Now you want it to spin or rotate or do something different. And you can now modify it. So we've been looking at overall products, even how you can reupholster in the field. Can you take off the zipper, pull it off, put new upholstery on? Because maybe your brand colors change. Mm-hmm. And your brand colors are blue. And you're like, well, now they're yellow. Yeah. <clears throat> and you don't want to go and pay for all new furniture. You just need new upholstery. So a lot of our products, you can actually take off the furniture, the upholstery, and then you can reskin it in the field. Oh, that's perfect. To your, to your point, if you, if you stay static uh, with what's in your you know, what's in your workplace and it doesn't match what you're trying to do from a cultural or a brand standpoint, that disconnect, I think, is damaging to the brand. It's going to, it's damaging to the brand and it's also potentially damaging to employee morale and how they're perceiving the company and what they're doing as well. Because that starts modifying. Like for you, how often have you changed your logo, your brand standards? Has it happened often? Have you guys stayed pretty consistent? Yeah, you know, it's evolved over time. So I probably twice in the last, you know, 12 years, I think. Yeah. Um, which is probably more than a lot of firms, really. Yeah, but I even look at like the Coca-Cola colors and logos and what they do and PepsiCo and anyone else. Like They tend to modify. It's not huge changes, but it's still minor little tweaks to the logo or maybe what they're promoting at that time or discontinuing as well. Right. Like when Coke got rid of Coke Vanilla, like <laughs> they had to get rid of all the Coke Vanilla and all the branding and all the colors that were associated with it, which is subtle, but if you're building your furniture or your office around it, now also you got to take that away. Right. Yeah, or else people think, think they're stuck or forgotten about, I think, too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you talk about this third workplace, I, you know, it, it may not be so easy to account for the coffee shop or, you know, the the food court at the mall and places yeah. like that. But um, I'm I'm curious of what you're thinking about the WeWorks of the world. You know, where maybe WeWorks not the greatest example, but they're not doing so well financially. So they, you would say, 
is that a successful model to think about these these uh, shared workspaces, or is that is that concept something that you see with a lot of your clients to who are thinking about that third workspace and trying to make something out of it for employees? So I think when we work first started, it was you know it was very sticky and easy to kind of utilize because it was like oh it was a place to kind of get away from the office, or if I did live somewhere remote, it provided that opportunity to still be kind of engaged and have a touchdown space to get out of my house. I think what happened was you know with the change in management at WeWork also kind of changing business model. You're seeing a lot of companies go to WeWork, be like, oh, we need 50 workstations or we need 100 workstations. So I say to some extent, they kind of became a, a glorified landlord to some extent because you can still go to another landlord and to our broker and say, hey, I'm looking for a 100 desk or a different space. And what we've seen the last three years is more real estate's freed up. You know, companies, some companies are downsizing their square footage. Some are keeping the same, but restacking the space. So I think with, you know, like for the third workplaces, you can't have a whole business model around shared co-working spaces because it's too competitive. And you're seeing, in, even in New Jersey right now, you're seeing these commercial buildings that are adapting their spaces to allow labs in or industrial space in. And they're installing you know, very expensive ventilation units to modify for that space. So that's all kind of new. But I don't see WeWork being the future of the third workplace. I think you're going to want areas where they're building a community, a culture. You might build your own campus that incorporates a bunch of different companies. I think Bellworks and Homedale was is a good example. Is it's not a WeWork. It's also not necessarily you know dedicated to just one tenant either. You're having multiple tenants in there, and what they really did was they created a community where residents in the area can come down, hang out on the first floor. There's restaurants, there's coffee shops, there's areas to go shopping, there's a doggy daycare and dry cleaning. So you're getting community engagement. So you're getting all your surrounding towns and your residents involved. You're getting the people who commute there every day to also be engaged. And I think that's potentially the future is this Bellworks type model where they're having tenants or having things that are good for the community. Because I think at the end of the day, is, like I was talking about before, it's all about social connectivity and that tissue behind it. And and I say that's where emotional intelligence is really important is as a, you know, any leader, I think going forward needs to have a high level of emotional intelligence and be able to communicate and build a community and a culture in their company. So I think for me, we work, it's going to struggle a little bit more because there's no real, again, free beer only goes so far. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, you might say that uh, before the pandemic, we work was the first workplace for a lot of companies, right? Especially a lot of startups that felt like yeah. they needed to have a place where they could get together and work. You know, maybe one of the many factors that they're dealing with is people are comfortable working at home, you know, when they're doing a startup venture and they just jump on Zoom or Teams or WebEx to talk to each other. Do you think it's more socially acceptable now if you're a startup company to be working from home and clients will respect it? I think they do, you know, or maybe it, it really depends on the business, yeah. I think. Um, but I'm I, just my own experience. I'm not sure that people are any more impressed because you have a physical place in a WeWork space. Do you think pre-pandemic people were more impressed if you had a look, physical location or... Yeah, you were like, you know, you were something because you, yeah. you'd gotten past working in your own garage yeah. to being in a place that looked kind of respectable. And, you know, you're, you know, you, you know what the typical entrepreneur might look like. You know, they're yeah. wearing jeans and sneakers and T-shirts and hanging out uh, in the coffee lounge, but they've got a place within that space, you know. Yeah. So it's something, right? I think it's a lot of it is it's psychological. I think it's social changes. We... You know, I think behavior always changes generation to generation or even every five years. What's socially acceptable kind of modifies over time. So I really believe it's it's okay to be on Zoom call because you could be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company and you could be working from home and you're still going to get the same respect as if you were in your office 
Right. And you may not build a culture that you need because you need to be in person. I still believe to, to have that culture and to drive it. But if there's a day here and there that you're taking a meeting from home, no one's really questioning as much as it may be. I want to use like 2010 as an example. As if you're in 2010, they're like, oh, you're working from home. They, they're lazy. They can't be getting work done. And I think some of that perception is still there. But again, I think those barriers have come down where now it's like, oh, no, I'm going to start a company. We have, you know, we, we work with a marketing agency that has people all over the U.S. And their mentality is they hire grade A talent. So anyone in their agency is the best of the best cream of the crop. So they're leveraging the ability to be remote to have the best talent. And that's what they're bringing to you. And I say, that's a good pitch. To me, it's compelling. It's like, hey, you're bringing me grade A talent. You're not just selling for the grade C talent that you have right. in your geographic area. No, I agree 100% though, with because you're, you're talking about kind of two, two different, I don't know, two different models in a sense. You know, having some face-to-face -face time and interaction like what you and I are having today, I think is really important to get to mm -hmm. know people. Um, you have to work extra hard if you're going to have that remote workforce. The, the business proposition is there. If you can get you know, the best talent for what the project is in Nashville or Miami, and we're here in New Jersey, that's a great way to do it. But you got to figure out a way to build your culture, whatever that is. And it's going to be different for every company, you know. Uh, the WeWork thing was probably part of the cultural aspect for a lot okay. of companies, you know, before the pandemic, uh, for sure. And when I say WeWork, it's all these different shared workspaces. But that was where they, they did their thing. That's their culture was to be in a shared office, you know, collaborating with other people, whatever it is. Um, so yes, it's more socially acceptable to be at home, either full-time or part-time. But as a leader, I think, you know, the, it takes a lot to build that culture somehow, no. you know, like one thing I, one thing I think that's interesting, just, this is my own, uh, perception of it. You know, a, a number of companies, uh, wanted people to come back to the office and they, um, you know, they backed off when, when employees complained that we're working fine from home and they force people into a, a hybrid schedule and they just say, you need to be in the office three days a week, you pick. Well, what if I come on a Friday and no one else is there or a Monday and no one else is there? What's the benefit of that other than checking a box and saying I was here? So you have to be, like anything else cultural in my opinion, you have to be more deliberate about how you do it uh, and say, look, you're gonna be here with your team three days a week if that's important to the culture, uh, just to make sure that you're gonna benefit from being in the office or else there's no value to it. Well, I think a lot of that is intention is, you know, why are you doing it? What's the purpose behind it? Because, yes, it is you're going to be with your team, but it could also be, you know, the example I always give is on a Zoom call or a Teams call, as you have 10, 15 people on that call, you only one person's talking at a time. But if you're in person, those 10, 15 people might break out to subgroups. And what you're doing is you're problem solving faster, you're having better conversations, and now those subgroups come back together to the main group, and they're now getting a better solution, better Agreed. resolution and it's happening a lot faster so i think the intention is you know one is what culture are you building attention who are your clients and what's their purpose of doing it for them you know what's the intention of building that culture do you want long-lasting employees do you want commitment from them do you want them to you know you don't want turnover every 18 months because it takes 18 months to break even an employee so that's <laughs> you want to make sure that you're building that culture and i think a lot of it is people really are just social animals animals whether you're an introvert or extrovert you still want to engage with people just at different levels in different times. And that's why that office format and function and design has to cater to that. Agreed. Uh, to your point, it's some of those side conferences, or even if they're just informal conferences around the major meeting when you're in person are way more valuable than the meeting sometimes. And I mean, that's really how we form relationships because no one hires 
a lawyer or a, a designer or an accountant unless they feel comfortable with them. So getting comfortable mm -hmm. with people is, you know, is part of that culture too, right? Now you have offices all over the U.S. So are you are most of your team and staff meeting with people face to face, shaking hands? You know, it all depends. You know, it's a combination anymore. I guess that's the breath of fresh air in this whole thing is yeah. that there's more flexibility to do things. You know, where clients, uh, in many cases, will hire us before they even met us face to face. Maybe they've only seen us on a team call, a Teams call. Okay. You know, so there. I, I think that's a good thing. Uh, in terms of being able to spread your wings a little bit, but um, you know th those people work remotely uh, yeah. in their you know in their own home office really, uh, and there's a few of those because of some of the needs that we have. But it, you know it's it's our job to sort of keep them in the fold yeah. and make it almost like they're here. Now, out of uh, curiosity, how are those clients finding you? Because now you have different locations, different people all over the U.S. How are they finding you and engaging with you from the beginning? You know it's. Uh, it's a little bit about uh, the outbound marketing, I think, you know, being able to talk to people in those places in a deliberate way. You know, the, the idea that you're going to find your lawyer just by accident or, or searching on the Internet or, or getting an ad, there's a lot of lawyers that do that. That's their practice, you know, personal injury, uh, individual bankruptcy, that kind yeah. of thing, or maybe, you know, uh, residential real estate. That's where you might, uh, that's where you might uh, find your lawyer by accident almost. But in our world, it's more about a deliberate relationship. You know, it, it takes it takes a comfort level. If not, sometimes there it's easy because you get a referral from somebody who's already a client or a friend. They know us, yeah. and just that referral's enough. More often than not, though, it's about um, being able to to reach people in a meaningful way. And I think the culture, by the way, is really important in that too, because the culture of how we run as a firm uh, is is important to the message and how we deliver services. So, you know, no. culture is just not furniture and real estate for sure, but though that is the foundational stuff for how you go to market and how you serve people. See that level of rapport, I call that the, the midnight panic, is it shouldn't happen, they should never call you at midnight, but they almost want to have a relationship with you where if things are really, really bad or they're feeling uncomfortable or something happens that they feel as if they can call you at midnight and you'll answer the phone and you'll be there for them. Right. I think that goes a long way versus, you know, the light engagement on social media or LinkedIn where they kind of know you, but they don't feel comfortable reaching out to you, but you're building genuine relationships that with your clients driving change, which most likely is bleeding into the culture of your office is you guys are building better rapport, better relationships, which is only going to elevate your service to your clients too. Yeah. So I say that's the importance of coming back to the office and working and sitting down and having the products and the requirements to make that area as productive as possible and getting maximum efficiency. And also, you know, I say those days of sometimes working 12, 14, 16 hours are essentially gone from the Gen Z generation. Like they really want to be able to come in eight, nine, 10, 11 hours and maximize their time, be super productive, but they really want to check out the office till the next day. And I think employers should strive for that too, because they come back refreshed when they check out, they learn new things, they blow off steam, whatever it is, but they come back. So if you can really maximize that time in the office with the right, it's a combination of furniture, but it's also technology. It's acoustic materials, office space, social needs. Like yeah. all of that is, has to come full, full circle. Yeah. Each is a, a bullet in the holster or a tool in the toolbox, whatever analogy you want to use. Um, but it has to start somewhere. There has to be a, a hub on the wheel or a, a core for what you believe in. And then all those things like technology or are tools that complement it or reinforce it, right? So yeah. if you don't know who you are as a business or what you're trying to be, um, 
you know, you you won't achieve anything no matter how how great your office is or how good your technology yeah. is because, you know, the, you're sort of putting the cart before the horse. If you think you're going to create a culture by, you know, doing those kinds of things, you're probably missing the boat. But to your point, all those things have to be consistent with what you're trying to achieve. So let me ask you this. On your point of culture, we've seen the last few years a lot of employees leaving companies, starting up their own companies. They're starting to grow and scale to some extent. Do you think a lot of these younger companies, maybe even more established company, you know, been out for a few years, five, seven, do you think they know what their culture is and their purpose, or do you think they're still trying to figure it out? You know, I think um, I think it varies a little bit. Um, it, it, it depends on so many things, but it, it probably is going to depend a lot on whatever the product or service is, you know, um, and that's probably going to drive what they end up becoming. You know, if it's two guys writing an app uh, that turns into a company, that that's one thing you know the culture i think comes maybe second from the idea and m probably most of the time too you know that when you create a brand new venture you've got this great idea you're developing it and nurturing it and trying to get it ready for market you're probably more focused on that than you are the company culture it's after you at least it's just my own two cents if once you once you start going to market and then you have to figure out, well, how am I going to sustain this? That's that's a little bit about when the cultural discussions start to come, uh, in a formal way. You know, hopefully that hopefully the, the the folks that are creating that business have got some kind of a, you know, a way of doing business or a relationship or a rapport that is yeah. the temporary culture. I'm not sure if that's the right word for it, but uh, that's their culture. We're just we're just working hard, you know, working working late nights and not for not a lot of money, so we yeah. can. We can do this thing or provide this service. You know, us on the other hand, just like your company, it's established. So you get to step back a little bit and, and say, well, what do I what what do I need my culture to be uh, in order to do what I'm trying to deliver to yeah. customers or clients, right? Um, so I, I always think there's this bilateral relationship between the two because your culture. Uh, your culture should be somewhat flexible, though they'll have some core values, right? So just like furniture needs to get moved around sometimes, your culture has to pivot a little bit yeah. so long as you're true to your core. Like if you want to be, you know, we want to be a, a certain type of firm delivering a certain type of service in a particular way. So we we know what our core values yeah. are, but the way we deliver them might be, change a little bit or uh, the technology might help us do it better or faster, whatever it is. So, to me, core values are important. But but in the in the startup world, you know, the core values tend to be we're going to get this thing to market and it's going to be great and we're all going to make a lot yeah. of money. It's when you start to develop the company behind it after you get off the ground. I think it's when you start thinking about some of those more foundational things. Yeah, I think even for for Dauphin, as we've been finding our footing the past few years with the changes and technology, furniture has changed. You know, anytime we even do a policy, <clears throat> sorry, we try to make it equitable for all. So our goal is from production all the way through the office, the sales team, that everyone is able to contribute and participate. So the goal is behind it, you know, for this summer, we tried it last summer and it worked well and we brought it back again this summer called Summer Fridays. So what we did was we just did four 10-hour workdays. So everybody had all Friday, Saturday, Sunday. If we ever, ever had to do overtime, it was on Friday. So we still had a full weekend. But our agreement was we would only do it if production could do it because they're physically in person every single day. They're the ones building products. They're the one dealing with the summer heat potentially. Like all of those factors really 
hinder on them. Like they're the ones that are potentially could suffer if they don't have the buy-in and they don't agree to it. So we talked with them, we polled them, and we had about 99% of people who were like, hey, I want to do this. We really liked, we liked the idea of Summer Fridays. And then this year when we were thinking about doing it again, we didn't even bring it up in production was the first one to bring it up to us. And they're like, hey, we really like Summer Friday. Can we do it again? So we've done it this whole summer, but it was equitable from production to our office, to our sales team, so everybody could participate and you feel like everyone's included. And then we also included community impact days. So two days a year, you can volunteer for an organization that you believe in, it's in your community, it's something that you want to give time to, and you can take off a full day from on a weekday and you get paid for that day. And now you're contributing giving back, but we did that again for production, office, sales team, everyone can do it. So that's been a lot of our goals is just how do you make it, again, equitable for, for everybody. Mm-hmm. So you're not putting different peoples in, in silos. Well, that d- that divide really became evident during COVID too, where uh, jobs that you can't work from home for uh, yeah. were in the office or in the factory or in the in the warehouse. So just if you, take, if you extrapolate it a little bit, I really think that's part of a lot of the rise in organized labor that we've seen in some places, you know, Amazon, Starbucks, et cetera. Well, UPS just got that $170,000 contract on average. So. Uh, yeah. That, another one too, yeah. right? Yeah. There's a lot going on there, you know, with a, a really uh, aggressive new president. and But yeah. but I think that the tone was set for that, though. There was yeah. a, a nice foundational tone for him to uh, really lead UPS's uh, employees into a better situation, better contract. But it, it, it's that general unrest, I think, at, at those levels where, you know, those folks couldn't work from home, so they felt disenfranchised, where they felt like they were going to be the ones that all got sick. That didn't really happen, of course. But, no. yeah, I think that's important to, you know, sometimes to think about it from the from the lowest levels up rather than down from the highest levels, you know. Well, I'd say even as we meet with some of our clients, you sometimes hear senior management, they're like, oh, well, when this person's working from home, we don't really think that they're working or we don't have faith that they're working so I think a lot of that is, again, it's not just from those that physically have to be there, but even the ones that don't have to be there that have hybrid employees, how are they managing it? And what's their, what are they saying to the team when those people aren't there? So it's it's a hard, again, it's emotional intelligence, it's psychological, it's, I think we're in a new age of leadership that you can't just be a manager that kind of grew up in the, in the industry or in the organization. You now have to develop leadership skills. You have to develop the ability to have compassion, empathy, and really manage your team and make them better leaders and that they should outlead you at some point, hopefully too. Yeah, hopefully, right? That's that's the dream, right? So so you're really, you know, because of what you do at Dauphin, you're really boots on the ground in in lots of different types of workspaces Mm -hmm. and workplaces. What would you say we should expect to see in, say, the next 18 months in terms of the office environment? So over the next 18 months, what I think you're going to see is... People have figured out, I think, what their core values are in culture, kind of like we've been talking about. And I think now they're kind of going to this implementation stage because we've seen this year in 2023, people are a little hesitant to to spend money because they, you know, they're fearing recession or they're in a recession and they're kind of waiting for 2024 to come. And I do think people will there'll be an increase in spending. I think more people will be flipping their offices. You're seeing more type of mandates even from Zoom or people coming back to the office. So I think you're going to see a lot of restacking happening. I think it's going to happen very, very quickly. There's also a big focus on materiality and localization. So you know, you're seeing the biggest A&D firms in the world. They're being very selective of the materials they're using, of how they could be hazardous to the people, or how they feel. Because you know, if anything's off-gassing, you know, it can give you headaches. You don't feel great. But at the same time, 
we're seeing a lot of designers saying we want quality furniture that's coming locally or in the U.S. or you know maybe Canada, Mexico, and nearshoring, but they don't want to have things coming from far, far away. They want that ability to have that again that relationship. They feel and then they allow them we're scoring because during 2020 lead times went from six to eight weeks to 20 plus weeks. And I think now they're like, well, we don't want to get in that situation again. So we're going to work with local people. We want that relationship. I want to know who my salesperson is. I want to, matter, I want to be able to pick up a phone and talk to them and ask them questions. So you have to be smarter. You have to be able to pivot. You have to have more of a knowledge base. So I think over the next 18 months, you're going to see manufacturers that have that rapport and those relationships kind of bubble to the surface for success. You're going to see offices continue to be free stack, change, modified, but they're going to become very flexible. I also think you're going to see less construction internally you're going to see general buildings going up but i think you're going to see more floor to ceiling class panel systems you know we have this room and room system that goes up in, in 10 hours and that's something that's been a huge increase for us because you can put it up in a day take it down in a day and you can always move it wherever you want and it includes your ventilation your lighting so you're seeing more products like that pop up too and they have all different sizes so i think all of that's going to be very very important going forward and that, and I say it's sustainable construction. That's how I look at it. It's sustainable construction that's healthy for the people. It's healthy for the environment as well. And you know what's coming from some, not someone down the street, but someone nearby. Well, you know uh, that the office, uh, I'm sorry, the open office concept, um, it's been written about by many folks who say it, did, it, it didn't work. It was bad for collaboration and all those things. And especially during COVID, people, people were afraid of it. So now you, you, you watch the pendulum come back where we want to get together and but we need some separateness too uh but we need to do it it's almost like you're taking a hybrid approach to that where you've got it's not they, they aren't um sheetrock walls they're glass walls yeah. you've got the flexibility but you've also got the privacy that you need to right yeah i think a lot of it is you don't want to be confined to your office all day so i think in the past people come in their office they'll sit there for eight hours and then they go home so I think the goal is maybe you still have an office, but it's probably smaller than it was before. You might have a conference room, but maybe you have more smaller conference rooms versus one big one. So now that's encouraging people to go sit together. And I think the goal too is, you know, if you do have that smaller conference room, you still need the technology incorporate where you have a TV, you can still do team or Zooms, incorporate those hybrid employees or those remote employees, but they still have that sense of connectivity where, and I say it's always different. If you have 10 people on Zoom versus maybe six are in a conference room and the other four are remote, you all of a sudden see six people together and you're, I kind of say it's like FOMO if you're missing out. Like, they're like, oh, I should have been in the office today. I could have been with everybody in the conference room and joking and having a quick chat. So I say, that's yeah, you miss bit. out. Yeah. You totally miss out. Maybe that's the secret. We have to create fear of missing out for, there you go. For people to come back to the office. Send that back to the design team. There you go. <laughs> hey, you know, just, uh, I'd love to, this is a great discussion, by the way, Matthew. And I, I just, one thing I, I've asked a lot of folks that have, sat for these uh, podcast episodes is what keeps you up at night you know what 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 it what out there makes you a little bit nervous and you know but what do you think the positive side is that might uh make you sleep a little bit better so in terms of what keeps me up at night it's a lot of things but i think one thing that i always think about is the customer journey and how technology is impacting that and how you have to keep integrating new technology new things essentially that and you don't know what they are. And you, you know, AI is a big thing right now. You're seeing jobs being replaced by AI and you're seeing people making their business more efficient using it. They're leveraging it for different things. Call centers are using it. So now the question is, is you know, how do you eliminate barriers in your customer journey so you have less walls put up? You're making it from, you know, I say contract furniture is notorious for having the worst um, touch points because you have 
into architecture and design firms. So you have interior designers, you have furniture dealers, you have the manufacturers, you have brokers, you have so many people involved and it becomes very cumbersome. But so my thing I always think about is just how do we make the best customer journey? I always think about, you know, when the BlackBerry came out, the whole idea behind it was three clicks to get to what you needed. That was the original concept. So I think that's still true is you want the least amount of clicks or the least amount of interactions to get to what you want. And that's been what's been a big thought of my process is how do we make our customer journey better? How do we lean it out? How do we make it more efficient? And I've been talking to a lot of different companies such as like Poet Pim who just came out a year and a half ago and you're seeing that they're trying to figure it out too and they're trying to implement technology and come up with things that are specific for the contract furniture market but there's not a full solution yet. So I am kind of hoping someone gets there but that is keeping me up at night but at the same time as you would ask is you know what's the bright side to it is companies like Poet Pim that are coming out and these other companies Avanto who are really investing time, money, resources in building a new software that caters to our industry. So that's been great for me because I think it's not just contract furniture related, it's just the marketplace as a whole is you can really leverage technology to make a better business model. You can be more efficient. You can also be more profitable. So I think there's all those things that kind of come full circle. It's like, hey, our business is better because we have the right technology that we need. And we're not hiring people just to do busy work. We're hiring people that make a meaningful impact to our company, which is also going to make them come back to the office and be dedicated to your office because they're like, hey, I'm actually here to do something. And I really mean it when I'm there versus I'm just doing admin work all day. And I think that's where AI can start replacing it. It's get rid of the admin work, get rid of like the busy work. Let me be the, you know, the thought leader and the thinker in the company and pioneer these solutions for us. So that's where I feel better. Well, from a, just to end on a, on a note about culture again, you know, if you can use the technology to lift up your employees to do more interesting work uh, yeah. and reduce costs at the same time, but again, elevate your your uh, employees so that they're more excited about working for you, then the technology is, is the solution for sure. But it's when uh, I think people make the mistake, they think they're just going to install uh, software because it's you know it's interesting or it's it looks like it's great but it doesn't really fit your business. That's where the mistakes mm -hmm. happen for sure. They do because it's trending. Exactly, exactly. Well, Matthew, this is a great conversation and I really enjoyed uh, sitting down with you. Just uh, for anyone who may join the podcast uh, after the start, this is Matthew Negron from Dauphin Furniture, um, and we had a great discussion today about uh, everything from the market to furniture to workplaces. So. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, and again, this is the uh, Think Factory podcast, hosted by and powered by OGC Solutions. See you next time.